Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is the first lecture in the Adult Reconstruction Lecture Series. We will break down this lecture series into three basic components. The basic science of adult reconstruction, hip arthroplasty, including techniques and complications, followed by knee arthroplasty techniques and complications. We will begin the basic science section by going over some of the disease processes that lead to the need for hip and knee replacement, namely osteoarthritis, osteonecrosis, and hip dysplasia. Let's begin by discussing osteoarthritis. So what is osteoarthritis? This is a degenerative disease of the synovial joints that leads to an erosion of the articular cartilage. The loss of articular cartilage causes remodeling of the subchondral bone with osteophyte formation causing pain, swelling, and stiffness. Patients with severe osteoarthritis will have an overall decline in their ability to perform activities of daily living and quality of life. So first off, osteoarthritis is incredibly prevalent. In fact, it is the number one cause of disability in patients over the age of 65 in developed countries. Knee osteoarthritis is more common than hip arthritis. About 12% of adults over the age of 60 will have osteoarthritis in the knee joint. Stated another way, about 250 out of 100,000 individuals will develop symptomatic osteoarthritis of the knee joint. Hip is slightly less prevalent, with 88 out of 100,000 developing symptomatic hip osteoarthritis. Females tend to be more commonly affected than males, which may be tied to the loss of estrogen during aging. Of course, the prevalence of osteoarthritis increases with age, which is a problem as our population gets considerably older over the next several decades, but it is important to note that osteoarthritis is not simply the result of wear and tear brought on as we age. It is a different process altogether. There are several risk factors which will predispose a patient to developing osteoarthritis. We classify these as modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. Modifiable risk factors include obesity, trauma, a strenuous lifestyle or occupation, and metabolic syndrome. Those are the things that you can change to some degree. Non-modifiable risk factors include being a female, getting old, having family members that have developed osteoarthritis, and race. Now how does osteoarthritis develop and what does it do to our joints? Osteoarthritis, as I stated earlier, is not normal aging. The changes that occur in cartilage with normal aging are different than what occurs during osteoarthritis. So first, let's review articular cartilage structure and function. So remember that articular cartilage or hyaline cartilage is composed of water, type 2 collagen, and proteoglycans. It functions to evenly distribute loads across the articular surface. Cartilage is made up of chondrocytes and extracellular matrix. The chondrocytes produce the collagen and proteoglycans and they respond to both mechanical and chemical stimuli. The extracellular matrix is comprised of water, collagen, and proteoglycans. Water makes up 65-85% to 85% of the mass of cartilage. Water content increases with osteoarthritis. Again, water content increases with osteoarthritis. Collagen makes up 10-20% to 20 of the cartilage mass and again is comprised of type 2 collagen. Proteoglycans make up the remaining 10-15% to 15 of the mass. I like to visualize the proteoglycan molecules as a tree. The leaves on the tree come in two types, keratin sulfate and chondroitin sulfate. These leaves bind to a protein core which would be analogous to a branch. The branch would be called an aggregate molecule. These aggregate molecules then bind to a hyaluronic acid core. This is analogous to each branch binding to the tree trunk. The aggregate molecules bind to the hyaluronic acid via link proteins. Proteoglycans are responsible for the compressive strength of the articular cartilage. Because the leaves on the tree, or keratin sulfate or chondroitin sulfate, contain negative sulfite bonds, they are hydrophilic. 
This attracts water into the articular cartilage. The type 2 collagen meshwork keeps the cartilage from swelling. Under load, water gets squeezed out of the articular surface, and as the load is released, it flows back in. This is known as elastohydrodynamic lubrication. So how about the histologic structure of articular cartilage? Cartilage is comprised of three zones and a tide mark. In the superficial zone, type 2 collagen fibers are oriented parallel to the joint surface. There are flat chondrocytes, and it resists shear stress very well. In the intermediate zone, which is the thickest layer, the type 2 collagen is more randomly organized, and there are large, round chondrocytes. The deep layer has the highest concentration of proteoglycans, and type 2 collagen fibers run perpendicular to the joint surface, crossing the tide mark. The tide mark divides the superficial, or uncalcified, cartilage from the calcified cartilage below. Cartilage injuries are classified as superficial or deep based upon whether or not they cross the tide mark. Superficial injuries do not heal spontaneously on their own. Deep lacerations through the tide mark will have an influx of undifferentiated stem cells capable of creating fibrocartilage. Remember that fibrocartilage is not hyaline cartilage. Fibrocartilage is composed of type 1 collagen. It is stiffer and has decreased wear characteristics versus hyaline cartilage. So remember that cartilage is avascular, aneural, and alymphatic. So as I mentioned, the changes that occur with osteoarthritis are not equal to the changes that occur with normal aging. So what occurs to the composition of articular cartilage in aging versus osteoarthritis? This is easier to conceptualize if we break it into the individual components. So first, in aging, the water content decreases. With osteoarthritis, the water content increases. Proteoglycan content decreases in both aging and osteoarthritis. This is the only process that is the same in both. However, the relative ratios of chondroitin and keratin sulfate change in opposite directions in aging versus osteoarthritis. There is a relative decrease in chondroitin sulfate and increase in keratin sulfate in aging with an increase in chondroitin sulfate and decrease in keratin sulfate in osteoarthritis. The modulus of elasticity increases in aging and decreases in osteoarthritis. This makes sense when you think about it in terms of the water content. In aging, cartilage dries out. It gets stiffer. In osteoarthritis, the cartilage gets wetter. It gets softer. Osteoarthritis is the most common form of arthritis. So what is it that initiates this cartilage destruction? Proteolytic enzymes known as matrix metalloproteinases digest the cartilage matrix. These proteins are typically inhibited by tissue inhibitors of matrix metalloproteinases, or TIMPs. In osteoarthritis, there is an overall imbalance of matrix metalloproteinases versus their inhibitory TIMPs. IL-1 increases the production of matrix metalloproteinases. These include stromalysin, plasmin, and Adams TS4. Overall, this inflammatory process leads to the degradation of the cartilage structure and loss of its mechanical properties. Alright, so that's a review of the structure and function of articular cartilage. Now, what if a patient has osteoarthritis of the knee joint, for instance? How do we treat this? What are our possible treatment options? Osteoarthritis of the knee is a highly prevalent disease, and therefore there is a great deal of research that has gone into evaluating the best evidence to help our patients. Non-operative management includes anti-inflammatories, weight loss, and exercise. The use of assistive devices such as a cane and the contralateral hand can be very beneficial for some patients. However, these three recommendations, anti-inflammatories, weight loss, and exercise, have the strongest support from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Bracing, 
corticosteroid injections, and viscoelastic joint injections are also frequently used in clinical practice. There is a lack of evidence to recommend for or against bracing and corticosteroid injections. The 2013 Clinical Practice Guidelines from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons states that they cannot recommend the use of viscoelastic joint injections based upon strong evidence. In terms of operative management, arthroscopy has been a point of contention. In the setting of a degenerative meniscal tear with a clinical history pointing to symptoms developing from a torn meniscus, an arthroscopic partial meniscectomy may be of some benefit. However, in a patient with arthritis, with the pain stemming from their arthritis, without signs of meniscal pathology, then arthroscopic debridement is contraindicated. Two options for unicompartmental disease include a high tibial osteotomy and unicompartmental knee arthroplasty. And finally, in a topic we will discuss in great detail later, patients may require a total joint arthroplasty. So let's switch gears now and talk about osteonecrosis of the hip joint. This is also known as avascular necrosis. It is less common than primary osteoarthritis. However, it still accounts for up to 10 to 20% of hip arthroplasty performed. It affects males more frequently than females and is bilateral in up to 80% of cases. Risk factors for osteonecrosis are similar in the hip as they are for the shoulder and knee. They can be broken down into direct and indirect causes. No matter the cause, the end result stems from vascular occlusion of the sinusoids adjacent to the joint, decreasing blood flow and cell death. Alcoholism, steroids, lupus, hypercoagulable states, trauma, sickle cell disease, and radiation have all been implicated as risk factors. If a patient has sickle cell disease, they have over a 75% chance of going on to femoral head collapse. Overall, patients with osteonecrosis of the hip will present with insidious onset of pain that's worse with stairs, rising from a seated position, or walking up an incline. The pain will be localized to the hip and groin. The initial physical examination may be rather benign, However, in advanced stages, the patient may have a decreased range of motion with a particular loss in internal rotation. The initial imaging workup for osteonecrosis of the hip starts with plain radiographic films. An AP pelvis and an AP and frog lateral hip should be obtained for a full evaluation. If osteonecrosis is suspected on the radiographs, the contralateral hip should be imaged as well because, again, osteonecrosis occurs in up to 80% of cases bilaterally. If radiographs appear normal, then an MRI should be obtained if the clinical suspicion remains high for osteonecrosis. The MRI has a 99% sensitivity and specificity for detecting osteonecrosis. It is the basis for the modified FECOT classification known as the Steinberg classification system. Patients are graded from stages 0 to 6. In stage 1 disease, there are normal radiographs with the MRI findings suggestive of early osteonecrosis. Stage 2 disease presents as cystic changes evident on radiographs. Stage 3 disease, the patients develop the crescent sign or subchondral collapse. The progression from stage 2 to 3 changes the available treatment options. Bisphosphonates can be used in the pre-collapse osteonecrosis, in other words, stage 1 and 2. Alledronate has been shown to prevent femoral head collapse and should be initiated in patients with pain and no collapse. Core decompression, performed by passing a small guide pin into the osteonecrotic lesion several times, should also be attempted prior to subchondral collapse. It is also beneficial for the overall outcome if the patient undergoing a core decompression has a reversible etiology for the cause of their osteonecrosis. In other words, patients on chronic steroids for the rest of their life will likely fail a core decompression. A vascularized fibular strut graft can also be attempted prior to the development of the crescent sign, hence in the pre-collapse stages. 
With this procedure, a large hole is created and the fibular strut is placed up against the subchondral plate as a buttress. This can be effective for medium or large size defects. This is technically very challenging and has the added morbidity of complications at the donor site. Stage 4 to stage 6 disease includes flattening of the femoral head, narrowing of the joint space, and advanced degenerative changes. These patients are typically treated with a total hip replacement. If it is a very young patient, they may undergo a hip arthrodesis only to later be converted to a hip replacement. Finally, let's discuss adult dysplasia of the hip. Dysplasia comes in two broad categories, acetabular and femoral dysplasia. It is felt that dysplasia contributes to up to one-third of all cases of hip osteoarthritis. In terms of acetabular dysplasia, there are three varieties. Too little coverage that is evidenced by a lack of anterior and lateral coverage, as well as a decreased acetabular socket. There's acetabular retroversion. Remember that the normal acetabular cup is inverted between 20 and 30 degrees and has a coronal tilt between 35 and 45 degrees. Acetabular overcoverage can also lead to a pincer-type deformity. So how do these patients with symptomatic hip dysplasia present? Well, typically these patients will present with hip or groin pain, especially with activity and with deep flexion of the hip. They may have a decreased internal rotation and increased external rotation on range of motion testing and gait analysis. Plain radiographs help to form the diagnosis and define the type of dysplasia. AP pelvis and AP and lateral x-rays of the hip, as well as a modified Weaver-Dunn x-ray, can help delineate the pathology. Undercoverage can be assessed with the lateral center edge angle, which is a line drawn from the center of the femoral head to the edge of the acetabulum. Retroversion of the acetabulum can be seen with a crossover sign on an AP pelvic x-ray. The anterior center edge angle is measured on a false profile view and can also point to undercoverage if the angle is less than 20 degrees. The tonus angle, also known as the acetabular index, is measured on the AP pelvis x-ray and is typically about 10 degrees sloping upward. An upward sloping tonus angle of greater than 10 degrees may indicate undercoverage or a shallow socket, whereas a downward sloping tonus angle may indicate overcoverage. And finally, the alpha angle, which is measured with a line down the femoral neck and a line from the center of the femoral head to the head-neck junction, can demonstrate a cam deformity if the angle measures greater than 50 degrees. Remember that the Dunn view has shown to have the greatest sensitivity and specificity for picking up cam lesions. The Crow classification system takes into account the amount of femoral head subluxation and proximal displacement of the femur and is graded on a scale from 1 to 4. With enough proximal migration and femoral head subluxation, the femur will migrate superiorly, creating a false acetabulum. So how do we treat patients with hip dysplasia? Mildly symptomatic patients can be treated with observation. However, patients with pain and more significant structural abnormalities will likely require operative intervention. Surgical correction should address the main anatomic pathology. In the settings of acetabular undercoverage, a periacetabular osteotomy capable of correcting the tilt and version of the acetabulum may be performed. This is beneficial if the patient has not developed any arthritic changes. If degenerative changes have already set in, the patient may require a total hip arthroplasty. Patients with a severely superiorly migrated proximal femur, such as a Crow type 3 lesion or type 4 deformity, present significant challenges during the reconstructive procedure. Leg lengthening greater than 4 centimeters increases the risk of sciatic nerve palsy. Again, leg lengthening greater than 4 centimeters increases the risk of sciatic nerve palsy. If attempting to normalize the location of the acetabular socket, the patient will require a subtrochanteric 
shortening osteotomy. Patients with acetabular overcoverage may benefit from acetabular plasty and cam resection, which can be done either with an open surgical hip dislocation or an arthroscopic acetabular plasty and cam resection. Overall, the goal is to recreate a patient's normal anatomy. If untreated, up to 50% of patients with hip dysplasia will develop degenerative disease by the age of 50 years old. All right, so that's our introduction to the total joint arthroplasty section. We touched on osteoarthritis and some of the basic signs underlying the disease. We also spoke briefly about hip dysplasia and osteonecrosis of the hip joint. The next lectures will focus specifically on primary and revision total hip arthroplasty and primary and revision total knee arthroplasty. As always, check back frequently for any lecture updates, modifications, and additions. Thanks again for listening.